We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I just want to take a second to thank you for tuning in to today's show. My name is Colin Kelly, co-host of the Road of His Overtime podcast, along with the great Sean Siegel. We do appreciate each and every listener, and as a thank you to each of you, you can get yourself a 10% discount to a Road of His NFL pass. We're heading at full speed towards the season. Make sure you're ready. Get yourself access to all the content and tools up on the Road of His website. All you have to do is add the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout to get yourself that 10% discount. Now let's go and dominate those fantasy leagues in 2021. the perfect show for any and every college football and NFL fan. I'm your host, Dave Funlico, and you can find me on Twitter at StayFunlico, and of course, find Travis May at Travis under, nope, at FF underscore Travis M. If you're joining us for the first time, College to Canton is a show about the journey of the best football players and prospects, from being a college football recruit all the way to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We always have some fantasy football on the show since this is a Roto-Viz radio podcast, but we also make sure to dive into some real college football and NFL analysis too. Last few episodes have been a lot of fun. Uh, Last week we had Christopher Harris on talking about uh, film review, and today's guest is Chris Towers. You can find him on Twitter at CTowersCBS. Super excited to have him on, kind of offering not a completely different perspective, but somewhat of a different perspective on looking at fantasy football. He is an analyst, writer, and podcaster with CBS Sports. He does baseball, football, and of course, you can find his excellent tweets all the time. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Yeah, literally all time, all of, all hours of the day, pretty much, I will be on your Twitter timeline. So. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm doing not... great. Um, yeah. It's the, it's the end of the week for me. This is my Friday, so uh, as soon as we're done... Watch a little preseason football, type up a, a few notes on that, and you know, maybe have a beer or two. There you go. And of course, we've got like the Field of Dreams game tonight that's not actually yeah. happening in the right state at the right field of dreams, but that's fine. And yeah. and are people in Iowa actually allowed to watch this game on MLB TV? Because I know they can't watch any other games. It's so crazy. So, <laughs> I, yeah. No, it, no, it I, is a little weird that it's not at the actual Field of Dreams. Yeah. I know. Like, when I learned that, it was like, well, like it's just nearby. It's adjacent to the field of dreams. Yeah. 
that would be a f- more fun name. No, I I became a big fan of yours. I mean, I liked you anyway, and then I found <laughs> out that you were the other Marlins fan that exists in the world, and I got very excited <laughs> because oh, you're I, a Marlins fan. I I am. Well, I mean, awesome. as much as I mean, someone can be. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I I grew up in Miami. Spent 31 years there uh, before I moved to New York a year and a half, almost two years ago now, and um, I pretty much lost all of my Miami sports fandom. I, except for the Marlins. And I think it's because I don't feel like I deserve to feel joy. Right. So that's why I stayed with them. Although I, I guess I would have stayed with the Dolphins too, if, if that was the case. Yeah, that, that's true. Although now with Tua, they're actually kind of, in my opinion, kind of exciting. But I was a huge Tua so. fan coming out. So uh, hopefully yeah. I'm not wrong on that one. But uh, I, I wanted to, before we kind of jump in, so for, for today's episode, we're going to kind of look at some advanced stats have you kind of talk us through some of them and and not all advanced stats are created equal and there's kind of a difference even in in my perception and i'd love to hear from you obviously which is why you're here um even just like what positions is it even beneficial to talk about advanced stats for so we're gonna get into some of that but before that i would love to hear uh one of your most controversial fantasy football or even nfl takes what's something that you truly believe that is you know very unpopular with the uh with the masses well, um, on today's episode of FFT, I got quite a bit of pushback for saying that I think Tua Tagovailoa is one of the most uh, talented quarterbacks in the league. I didn't think that was a hot take, <laughs> uh, but uh, apparently it is. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess my hottest take right now for fantasy football as a kind of general rule rather than just liking one player more than someone else does is I think all three of the big three tight ends are first round picks for fantasy okay. 2021. Um, they're the biggest edge you can get in, in the sport. They are uh, the only ones I think who legitimately have like wide receiver one ask upside. And if you don't get one of them, I'm not sure there's a difference maker at the position otherwise. Right. Okay. So um, positional scarcity, we used to talk about not like we used to talk about that a ton in baseball, mm-hmm. right? Like positional scarcity was a huge thing. And then all of a sudden shortstops and second baseman be started hitting 30 plus home runs and it wasn't <laughs> yeah. as big of a deal. And positional scarcity has never been that big of a deal mm-hmm. in, in football. So hearing it like being brought up again, it's kind of like, wait a second, what what's happening here? What's going on? And, uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you, man. Like, um, I, I'm in like a million leagues, so I have, you know, exposure mm-hmm. to everyone except for Waller somehow. But um, why is it that I don't feel great when I leave a draft room or if I'm looking at my team and I did take Kelsey early and, you know, my running backs and wide receivers don't seem to stack up with the competition. You're saying it's OK, all will be right and and well, even though it feels icky at the time. And I know that a lot of y'all at the CBS like. Keith and 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 uh, others also are, are pretty strong on this take too. So I'm curious mm-hmm. if you can talk me into it because I'm I'm a little nervous. So the way I look at it is, unless you spend a, f- a pick in the first two rounds on a running back, your chances of getting like let I did some research recently about you know round ranges and how often players hit based on positions. And yeah, I've actually we're going to get to that as well. So yeah, we can actually just kind of transition yeah, to there. Uh, yeah. So the uh, you know I set the standard as like 200 points for the season. Obviously, 
you know, there are must-start players who don't get to 200, 200, 200 points because they missed three games or whatever. But generally speaking, I look at that like that's a hit. Like, if you got that out of a pick, it was probably a pretty good pick. Um, and for running backs, inside the first two rounds, it's you know pretty high. I think it's like 60, 60 or 70%. Third round, it drops to between 45 and 50%. After that, the chances of getting a 200-point score at running back outside of the top three rounds, I think I, I need to get the numbers specifically in front of me, but I think it's something like 30, 20 to 30% starting in the fourth and fifth round and lower after that. And so unless you get one, or if you're really insistent about it, two of those guys, chances are the running backs you draft, they might look good on draft day. You know, Mike Davis looks like he's going to score a ton of points this season, but that kind of player in that range of the draft tends to be a pretty poor value. And so you're not necessarily gaining an edge by stacking running backs early on in the draft. And then wide receivers, again, it's kind of the same thing. If you get one of the top 15 to 20, you know, they can be legitimate difference makers. You know, those guys who score 15 plus PPR points, you know, have big upside. After that, I mean, I think it was like 56 uh, wide receivers last season averaged at least 10 PPR points per game. And so it's, a, it's again, another thing where if you come out of the draft with two early round run, two running backs in your first four picks and two wide receivers in your first four picks, and then you, you get your, your starting wide receivers in the fifth, sixth round for your flex and, and number three spot, you'll probably look at it and be like, man, that's pretty good. But are all those wide receivers going to be difference makers? Are they going to be legitimately better than the guys you could have gotten in the seventh round? Probably, but it's not a guarantee. And so when you look at the tight ends, and especially those big three, I don't think they're all going to be as good as they were last season. But even and if they're as good you're as You're talking they were Kelsey, pre- Kittle, and Kelsey, Waller? Kelsey, Kittle, and Waller, yeah. Um, if you look at – if they're as good as they were in 2019 – or yeah, 2019. I, I'm getting the years confused. Oh, yeah, uh, me too, all the time. This time of year is impossible to remember. No, so it would be 2020 – yeah, 2019. Sorry, yeah, three years ago now. Man, that's – uh, the, the, we've been in a time warp for like a year and a half now. Yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. If you have one of those guys, you're one getting huge weekly upside. We've seen that from Kittle, Waller, Kelsey in a way that like, yeah, and a, a tight end can score three touchdowns and match them, but you know, it's going to take that kind of performance, but you're also getting, you know, a locked in high floor from those guys. And so you could be looking at a situation where if you have Waller, you might get four to five more points per game on average than half the league gets from their tight end position. And then you look at like Hawkinson last year, he was tight end number five. It's pretty good. He outscored the number 13 tight end by one point per game. Yeah. That's not much. (laughs) That's not (laughs) much at all. That's what I, is that there's tight end has this high, high peak and, then the fall off is dramatic. Running back, all, running back also has that. I think I, you know, certainly McCaffrey is in his own category. But then even, you know, the next few guys. But then there's just a long tail of mediocrity, and guys get pushed up on the hope that they won't be mediocre, but they always are. Tight end yeah, is yeah. always mediocre, and so for me, it, it's the one position where I do think about 
the the edge that you can get on your competition. It's it's basically like you get to start an extra wide receiver. Yeah, interesting. So I guess my fear is that if by taking Kelsey in, you know, late round one um, mm-hmm. or, or one of these other guys in round two, I'm missing out on that, you know, that 76.7% hit rate that you have for those yeah. running backs, you know? And then all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, I'm locked in and tight end, but now um, I have to start two running backs. And now even if I go running back second and third round, you're talking about like, according to the the, the numbers you did, I have them pulled up here, 56.5% hit rate for those 200 points in the second round and, and drops down to 40% in, in round three. So I'm just nervous that, yeah, I'll be locked in and tight end. They'll have a positional advantage there. But then now my running back two is, you know, worse than a coin flip. And that makes me... Uh, super nervous. Of course, the zero RB uh, side of me yeah, um, feels like I can probably, especially with as neurotic as I am on the waiver wire, I can probably manage that a little bit, but I just feel like I've made it more difficult for myself. So I get nervous with the early tight yeah, end. I mean, it's, it's always drafting, anytime you're drafting in a snake draft, especially, which would be what we're talking about, it's always a a zero sum game. Every yeah. pick that you make is a pick you can't make on another position. And so you're going to have to make a sacrifice at some point. A lot of people think, Oh, I'll make the sacrifice with my number four wide receiver. Cause the position's so deep or, you know, something like that. Um, but I, and I, and I get that. And I, I think, you know, the argument against the tight ends would also be if that guy gets hurt, you're yeah. kind of, you're, you're pretty much screwed. Um, and maybe that's why I'm a little hesitant is because last year I did this in a lot of leagues, but I went with Kittle and yeah. of course the injury hit and I was just, you know, really unlucky <laughs> with, from that perspective for, uh, yeah. for quite a long time. Yep. Yep. No, same. I had a lot of Kittle as well. And, but I, I think it's, it's a lot about the principles of zero RB uh, right. apply to this where, you know, investing early in running back is no guarantee that you're going to get a very good running back. You know, you're hoping you will, but especially right now where running back prices have gone so high, you know, there's, I think 17 being drafted in the top 30, 30 picks, uh, on NFC since the start of August, which is, it's a lot, you know, and you're talking about guys who get pushed up like a JK Dobbins, who I think is good, but is unlikely to be you know, uh, a 300 point guy, you know, I don't think he has a path to that really. And so those prices tend to get inflated. If everybody's going, you know, if half your league is trying to get two running backs in the first round or the first two rounds, which seems pretty likely at this point, that means, you know, if you're drafting similar to them, you also have to be better at that type of team than six other people. Whereas if you zig where everyone else is zagging, you know, then you start to open up more avenues for yourself. You're not competing for the same types of players that those people are in season. And so, you know, I just think there's no obvious, there's no one way to build a winning team, right? You you can build a winning team, taking five running backs in a row. You can take a bit winning team. I don't know if you saw in the flex league uh, draft last week, but John Daigle, I think, took eight wide receivers to start his. Team. I heard y'all talking about it on the podcast. Yeah, Which is, Adam Adam Azer was pissed. <laughs> he was oh, like, "What sure are you doing?" But you know, the thing you always have to keep in mind anytime we're talking about these things is 
whatever your projected team looks like in week one, it's going to look way different by week four. Right. Let alone Absolutely. by week 14. And that, that's one of the things that is hard to keep in mind. You never want to go into week one with a weak spot in your lineup. But drafting just to make sure you don't have a hole in your week one lineup is, I think, a a pretty easy way to end up with a, a low upside team. Too. Yeah. It's a nice way to, uh, to end third or fourth in your league. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we, uh, before we get into some of the other stuff, uh, like the advanced stats and maybe breaking down a couple players. Um, I'm just curious, uh, what, what's your process when you're evaluating, uh, players for like, I know you do some rankings for the newsletter, which of course everyone should check out and sign up for the, uh, the CBS, uh, fantasy football newsletter. I'm going to have the link in the, the, show notes here so so do um do sign up for that um but when you're kind of putting your process together looking at everything what what's kind of the most important or some of the most important factors are you looking at film you're looking at a production profile or an athletic profile is it about opportunity or vacated production because of you know julio jones leaving atlanta like what for you kind of are the, I mean, obviously the easy answer is it's all of it, but where are some yeah. of the areas you spend the most time? I'll say this because I have to focus on multiple sports for work. Um, and just because like I never played organized football. I've never coached football. Um, I'm not a scout. So, you know, because of those limitations in my own skill set that I'm aware of, I don't put a lot of value in my ability to identify talent. I think most, you know, obviously there are outliers, but I think you reach a point where, you know, when, and we're talking about when you're in the NFL, the gaps in talent are relatively slim. And, you know, what one person might think, uh, you know, Joe Burrow is this incredible quarterback prospect and somebody else might think, I think is a very safe prospect, but, you know, maybe doesn't have the huge upside. Those people are looking at the same things and coming to different conclusions. And so I don't have confidence that my ability to identify and differentiate talent is a difference maker for myself. Um, I tend to trust, you know, uh, draft capital tend to put, you know, like when I start doing rankings, I'll, you know, kind of start with like a wisdom of the crowds. Like, let me look at a bunch of mock drafts. Let me look at a bunch of rankings, all this stuff. And kind of, you know, I'll, I'll kind of start, throw it all together, you know, do an average and just like, okay, here's where things are right now. And then move from there and try to find my own. Um, Cause I, I just think, you know, if you draft by ADP, you're not, that's another way to finish fourth. Right. Um, <laughs> but that's a good starting point. Um, you know, at least I think uh, that's, that's my process. I do, you know, put together my own projections and that's the basis of a lot of it just because I think there's a lot of value. You have to have some kind of concrete process. I think, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, if you do watch a lot of film and you've got that kind of time and you grade every player and all that stuff, that's great. Uh, but you have to have something that you're grounded to. You have to have something that anchors your positions and that you can justify. And then you work from there and you try to figure out, 
why does this, why was this the conclusion I came to? And then am I wrong on that assumption? Um, you know, I think a good example for me would be like, when I first did my projections, I go through every team and, you know, it's pace and projected plays and then how much they're going to run and pass and all these things. You know, so you basic. start from like, yeah, the team level and work your way to the yeah. player, not the other way around. Yeah, that's how I do it as well. Yeah. I ended up with um, Debo Samuel, about 10 spots higher in the wide receiver rankings than Brandon Ayuk. And at first I was like, well, you know, I think they're going to be pretty close in targets and I think Debo's going to get the rushing game work. And so that's how I came to the conclusion. And then I start thinking about it and it's like, well, Ayuk's probably going to get more targets. And then you start, you know, moving things around, but at least you want to have something concrete at the bottom of, of what you're yeah. doing to, to tether you and to test, um, to test one, the assumptions that are flying around from the industry and, you know, everybody like CeeDee Lamb being a top 12 wide receiver now in ADP. I get it. I understand why he's there. But once I start looking at the Cowboys offense, what I expect his role to be, I just can't get him there. Right. And so right. that's, you know, it's a good way to test your assumptions and also to make sure that like your assumptions are cons internally consistent. You know, if you have CeeDee Lamb, and Amari Cooper as top 12 wide receivers. And you have Michael Gallup 40th. <laughs> and you have Ezekiel Elliott as a top five running back. And you have Blake Jarwin and Dalton Schultz in your top 20. It's like, well, hold on. That that can't all happen. So what do I, what am I assuming? Who, you know, who do I assume has to lose something? That That's, I think, where having that process helps. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's great. I... Like you, I like to think I can evaluate film and sometimes I'll get into these arguments with people and they're like, but film is objective. I'm like, yes, the film you are watching is objective. That did take yes. place. However, our evaluation of it is extremely mm -hmm. subjective. And I think that's a good point that you bring up. And yeah, some people are great at it. Like I had Chris Harris on last week, like I mentioned, and he spends time watching tape on every player and that's great. Um, yeah. And he's someone that I trust in that. And so that that's a piece of the puzzle yeah. for me. But like, yeah, like definitely. yourself... I can't evaluate the film on my own. Um, and so yeah, like, like I, I think a good example is like Jerry Judy. Yeah. You know, you watch the the film of him doing one-on-ones in camp and he's just like uncoverable. The quote Teddy Bridgewater gave the other day, I think was, was very accurate. It was something like I watch him run routes and it looks like he's moving so fast and coming out of his break so fast that it looks like he doesn't have ACLs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he just like, he moves differently, but I've also seen people who are, you know, who I trust in their talent evaluation and, and, you know, watching film that say that that can get him into trouble when he's actually running routes within a game context because he doesn't run exactly the route that he's supposed mm. to or he goes yeah. off script a little bit. And so when I watch him, I watch Jerry Judy and I'm like, that dude is one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. He's going to be awesome. And then, you know, other, I'll, I'll look to other people who have different opinions and see, you know, what they say. And if it's logical and makes sense, then kind of temper my own. I don't, I don't want to put too much weight on my own. Yeah. On my own ability to identify talent because a lot of it's aesthetic, you know, a right. lot of it is just, I prefer this type of player to another type of player. You know, I think there's maybe less of that 
in football, but you know, I used to write about basketball a lot and there's so much just aesthetic based analysis in basketball where like, I love watching this guy play. I like the way he plays, you know, like Jamal Crawford's ability to get his own shot anywhere on the floor. He's really impressive. It's aesthetically pleasing. He does difficult stuff really well. Uh, but you can fall into the trap of thinking that that's more valuable than someone else doing something that looks kind of boring. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the case. So, you know, people who have a really robust process for watching film and grading things, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of value in that. I'm not one of those people. Right, right. No, that's good. I, uh, yeah, I, I think it's interesting, like what you said too, like when you, you kind of look at, your rankings or your projections and can kind of compare it to others and see like, where am I completely different? And, yeah. and do I need to rethink anything? Uh, that's a part where um, I always tend to second guess myself. And then looking mm-hmm. back oftentimes like, man, I really wish I would have stuck with my guns because I was way high, higher on Tyler Lockett. And that ended up being a yeah. really good thing or, or whoever it was. That's the one example that that yeah. was like the biggest one from like two years ago. And I was like, man, why did I change that? But let's mm-hmm. take a quick break. Um, And then we get back, we can uh, jump into some advanced stats, talk about some of that. Uh, So we'll be right back with you in about one minute. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. I'd love to hear just kind of um, some of the the reason why you like advanced stats to begin with, like why you find it more beneficial than just kind of like checking the box score or, or some of the other stuff. And then we can maybe run down through some of the big ones when it comes to quarterbacks, running backs, then like the receivers, whether it's tight ends or, or the wideouts. 
Yeah, I, I think there's a. I'll give one example that I think. Uh, here, let me let me see if I can pull up the exact stats from this game. It's the first one that came up came to to my mind, and uh, it was Tebow against the Steelers. In that. Oh, I remember game. that game. The playoff game. Tim Tebow completed ten passes on twenty one attempts for thirty three hundred and sixteen yards and two touchdowns. So you look at it and it's like, well, completion percentage low, but hit a lot of big plays, you know. Uh, 31.6 yards per completion, about 15 yards per attempt. And then you remember, if you you do remember this game, you'll remember that the way they beat the Steelers was in overtime. Uh, Demarius Thomas basically caught like a... Demarius Thomas. Caught like a 12-yard slant, I want to say. It was like, you know, it would have been yep. a first down if the Steelers had been able to tackle him. And he just outran the whole defense. And Tim Tebow gets 80 yards and a touchdown for that on that play. But, you know, he threw the ball 12 yards to a guy who was wide open. Marius Thomas did the bulk of the work on that. Right. So what advanced stats can help you do is try to try to identify credit, I guess, would be the way that you would go. Try to take out as much of the team context as you can, as much of the uh, surrounding uh, noise as you can, and try to identify what a player was responsible for, what they quote unquote earned. And, you know, I, I think at its base, you're just any advanced stat across all the sports, you're trying to identify something like the true talent level of the players. And in baseball, that's actually really easy. Because we can just right, track right. how hard a baseball player throws, and that is just how hard they throw. And we can track how hard a baseball player hits the ball and how, how many times they strike out, and those things are all, to at least a large extent, in their control. Football, I don't think I'm you know telling anybody anything surprising, but it's really, really hard to figure out how much of a play any given player you know deserves credit for. We've got a lot of advanced stats that try to now, though, and... Um, you know, when you're trying to analyze things moving forward, something like yards per attempt after contact or ex- yards over expect- expected on next-gen stats is going to tell you more than yards per carry. It's not going to tell you everything, but right. it's it's a deeper level. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's because, like I said earlier, I don't necessarily want to be the person who looks at you know a whole game and watches every play multiple times from different angles and tries to you know i just that's not my skill set my skill set is the ability to understand and express uh you know analytical terms in somewhat understandable ways i think yeah yeah, no, you, and you well, do. That's why. You're, that's why. I, yeah, that's why I brought you here. Um, no, and I think what's interesting, like with advanced stats, and I'm I'm actually really glad you brought up the Tim Tebow one. I I lived in Denver at the time. Still live in Denver, but I lived in other places. But like people here loved Tim Tim Tebow, and I'm like, the dude is not a good NFL quarterback. Great college quarterback, not a good NFL quarterback. I think if he came around um, maybe eight years later, he might have had more of a chance. Because uh, teams, well, I mean, he's back. Well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's gross. Teams might have been more willing to op- work with his unique skill set in a way that yes would maximize. It's teams aren't quite as invested in forcing every single shape of peg into a round hole anymore. Right. 
That is true. But I do think, generally um, speaking, he wasn't good also. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but the the reason I was that I appreciate you bringing up the quarterbacks uh, advanced stats is because I don't hear much talk about advanced stats when it comes to quarterbacks no. and even running backs as much where I hear the most conversation around advanced stats is with the wide receiver position with air yards, um, a dot, all those. And I want to get into those eventually, but I think those are the ones that people are most familiar with. So maybe we can start with the quarterback position. Um, and, and not only, um, what I appreciated if you kind of like break down some of the, um, some of the more useful ones, but then also saying like, yeah, this is an advanced stat. This is what it tells us, but this is why, uh, like, or maybe why we don't use them as often. Like for running backs, for example, um, yards before contact. I mean, that's helpful in understanding, but there's a lot of limitations to it as well. So maybe as we go through them, uh, you can give us some of those. So let's start with with quarterbacks. Um, and in your article that you wrote, you um, you reference how Tom Brady led the NFL last year. Um, in intended air yards. So if you kind of tell us what intended air yards is, and I mean, that one's kind of self-explanatory, but break it down for us a little bit. Um, and then just kind of, kind of roll through some of the other ones and describe maybe not only what it has told us about in the past, but how we can use that information as we plan for our upcoming drafts. And as we prep for what players we want to target in our, in our fantasy football leagues. Yeah. So intended air yards is simply how far down the field, uh, past the line of scrimmage, the, intended receiver was when the quarterback targeted them and so you know i think like the the best example for how to use this would be to look at what the steelers did last season um ben roethlisberger passed for a decent amount of yards they had three fantasy relevant wide receivers but man that offense was not good and a big part of it was that ben roethlisberger just wasn't really willing to push the ball down the field. If you watch them, especially towards the the middle and end of the season, it was all five yard throws to Deontay Johnson, four yard throws to Juju Smith Schuster, maybe one 20 yard attempt to chase Claypool every like 14 attempts. Um, And so, you know, this is, it's sort of like a degree of difficulty kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if a quarterback has an inordinate number of, or an inordinate amount of their yards come after the catch, that like I think Jimmy Garoppolo and the 49ers quarterbacks are a pretty good example of this. Kyle Shanahan is incredible at designing plays that get the ball in his wide receivers' hands in space, and they have incredible players when it comes to making plays after the catch. And so you see Jimmy Garoppolo have like 8.5 yards per attempt, 8.9 yards per attempt. You know, he'll have these massive numbers. And then you'll look at low touchdown rate, and the offenses aren't that good. And it's because you know, he's not really doing a lot of the work there. You know, yeah. he's put in good situations. He completes these plays, but the degree of difficulty is very low. Whereas you look at Lamar Jackson having a relatively low completion percentage, he's attempting much more difficult throws. He's attempting a lot more throws uh, up the field. A higher percentage of his throws are up the field. And so, you know, I think that's one where it's just, it gets you a little way to, you know, identifying how much upside there is for a quarterback in the passing game, I think. And it's true of wide receivers as well, but you know, when there's a large amount of downfield throws, um, there's a lot of upside. You have to complete the passes, but you know, I think that's the the primary usage. Yeah. Okay. um, That one makes sense. 
I'm guessing that um, wider, uh, not wider, quarterbacks who who might have really high intended air yards might have a lower on target rate, which is another one that you talk about in the article. Yeah. Um, and that may not always be true. A guy like Russell Wilson, you know, he, yeah. he's very good on those intermediate and deep throws. But um, talk to us a little bit about uh, on target rate and um, and expected completed percentage kind of um, those two kind of are somewhat related yeah i think you know you can't understand one without the other i think would be the, the way to put in so if and really completion percentage above expectations if you're talking about the the kind of suite of next gen stats i think um you know you kind of have to take them all holistically because if you have a guy who's throwing a lot of short passes the fact that he has a high completion percentage doesn't necessarily matter you know it, it's it's the question of how often is this person player on target? But if you have a guy who throws a lot of short passes, they're also going to have a, you know, presumably they should have a higher on target rate. So, you know, that's when you get into expect, expected completion percentage and expected completion percentage above average uh, or above expectation. Jimmy Garoppolo led the NFL in expected completion percentage last season. But like I talked about earlier, it's a lot of, easy throw the dinking and dunking and yeah. yeah and so where you get into well can i identify talent or at least how much how good this quarterback was in the last season because i don't you know there's limited predictive value to some of these stats but you know how many how much of your completions you're pers- you're completing above your expected completion percentage that's you know an indication that you have at least you were at least more effective more accurate however you want to put it obviously the wide receivers play a part in this as well sure um but you know deshaun watson um completed 70.2 percent of his passes last season he was throwing downfield a lot brandon cooks and will fuller are both guys who primarily work in the intermediate and deep range and so the fact that he completed 70.2 percent of his passes is more impressive given the fact that his expected completion percentage was 65.4, I believe. Trying to do the math on my head. I think it's 65.4. So, you know, Carson Wentz was the worst in the NFL last season. And if you watched Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson last season, both of those things make sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, So you you said it's it's hard to maybe use some of this information um, as predictive. Yeah. Um, but I do want to ask you that question because uh, I'd like to hear where has your opinion most been swayed either, you know, up or down your ranks based on some of these advanced stats that we're looking at specific, specifically for quarterbacks. So uh, given these specific uh, parameters, are there any guys that you find yourself more hesitant on, more bullish on um, based on this looking forward? Yeah, I think, you know, a key example for me would be Ben Roethlisberger where obviously I watched them a ton last year. They were, you know, on primetime a lot, so they had the island games a lot, but even when they were playing on Sundays. And the offense, just watching it, like, they were putting up points, they were winning games, but it just, like, didn't look good. They weren't moving the ball effectively at all. Um, And so my view of Ben Roethlisberger, you know, if you look at the overall numbers, it's like, eh, he had a pretty good season. Watching him and looking at the advanced stats, it's like, well, no, no, no. He was, you know, my my perception of it was he was just terrified to take a sack. I don't know if that's actually fair, if I'm projecting, but the way they designed their offense and the way he played last season, it looked like the primary concern on every play was making sure Ben Roethlisberger didn't get sacked. 
and how many yards and their chance of scoring was kind of secondary. And so, you know, one of the advanced stats was he got rid of the ball on average 2.1 seconds after the snap, which was by far the lowest in the NFL. It was like, I think 0.3 or 0.4 seconds lower. Yeah. Um, And so that's one where I look at what Ben Roethlisberger did, the way they designed their offense. And I just think if they play that way again, this offense is going to be worse than they were last season. Cause they were, you just saw towards the end of the season, they reached a point of diminishing returns and yeah, now they are in, in uh, putting in a new offense. You know, Matt Canada is the offensive coordinator, depending on who you talk, you, you hear in camp. It seems like if you ask Mike Tomlin, it sounds like he's just like same exact offense as always. Next question. And he, if you ask Ben Rosberger, he's like, Oh man, everything's different. It took me a long time to figure mm, things out. Yeah. Um, but what we do know is they're going to be playing out of the shotgun last, or at least that's the assumption based on everything we've heard. They're going to be playing under center, a lot more play action. They were under center and used play action the least in the NFL last season. And I think the second uh, lowest rate for both was double as much as they did. And so my concern now is one, what happens to Deontay Johnson, and Juju Smith's tar- Smith Schuster's target share. If they're not going to have those, you know, passes as an extension of the running game. And also, can a 39-year-old Ben Roethlisberger get comfortable playing under center for the first time mm-hmm. in a decade? Yeah. So that that's one specifically where, you know, a lot of those factors come into play on my view, and, and I'm starting to get pretty worried. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Let's let's move on to running back. Um, another one that you know you don't hear too much about when it comes to. Uh, the advanced stats, but one of the, one of the ones I wanted to just kind of get your opinion on was yards before and yards after contact. Mm -hmm. And um, first explain to us what, what those are, and then uh, maybe explain why those do or do not matter to you when evaluating for the sake of fantasy football. I have a hard time figuring out if it matters, but I, I am kind of, um, I'm a little bit of on the extreme end on the running back talent doesn't really matter outside of the, the outliers. Like it matters for Christian mm-hmm. McCaffrey and it matters for Kalen Balage, but you know, <laughs> in between oh, there's Kalen a Balage getting the shout there's out. There's a yawning gap uh, where most other running backs fit in. And there's not that much wide variance in my opinion, at least. Um, and so yards before contact, it's, it's in the name. It's how many yards on average a running back, uh, traveled before the first defender got to them, whether they broke a tackle, whether they were taken down. Um, and so obviously scheme plays a big part in this. And this is one of those stats that I think primarily it's assumed this is more of an offensive line or scheme stat. And so yeah, guys like Raheem Mostert, Damian Harris, J.K. Dobbins, uh, who played in you know somewhat more option-oriented offenses, they tend to do better by this metric because or they tend to have better results by this metric because that's the design. The design of the option is to take a defender out of the play and have the quarterback make the decision about whether they're going to hand off or keep it. And so, you know, how much of this is a running back stat versus a scheme or offensive line stat stat is an interesting question because I do think running backs can uh, Im- uh, impact this one as well. You know, if you don't have good vision, and you're not right. hitting the right holes, or if you're slow to the line, you know, you're going to have a, a lower yards before contact, even if you have good blocking. So 
it's what what kind of contact are we talking about here? Is it like the type of contact that, you know, leads to the next one, like a a, a broken tackle or something like that? Or is it even just like someone getting a, a hand on you? Do you know how they actually I think it's measure just when what first, contact means? Yeah, when the first defender gets there. Um, I don't think it's a bro- it's necessarily a broken tackle. Um, I think it's just, yeah, when the first defender gets to them. Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was like, you know, the hand brushes the jersey yeah. and uh, that counts or not. I don't so. know if like a hand brushing a jersey. I think it, it would have to be... Yeah. You know, a, l- a little bit more uh, significant than that. Yeah. So the other one I want to hear from you about is uh, rush yards over expected. Mm-hmm. And um, again, yeah, just kind of talk us through that one. And is this something that you think has year to year like carryover power? Like, again, is this more talking about the running back themselves or is this talking about scheme or the defense they're playing or, or whatever it might be? Uh so from this is where it starts to get a little over my head in terms of how they come up Mm -hmm. with it, because my understanding of this is all next gen stats and I have a pretty good understanding of statistics and, you know, a pretty analytical mind, but I I failed the only statistics class I took in college in my defense. (laughs) The midterm was on Halloween and it was a nine o'clock start. So I just, you know, didn't show up. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think you made the right choice. Yeah. (laughs) uh, And so it, you know, from what I understand, this is all based on their black boxed next gen stats. And it's yeah. a lot. I think they use like machine learning to take similar plays, similar, you know, speed by the rusher, speed by the defender, how far away everyone is from each other. And they look at similar plays and how many yards were expected in those situations. And then they compare it to what the player actually did. And, you know, one thing that works out in this stat that you look at last season, Derrick Henry, Nick Chubb and Dalvin Cook were at the top last season. Pass Smith sniff test. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, Leonard Fournette, Kenyon Drake, and Todd Gurley were in the bottom five. Also makes sense. It seems to yeah. that that generally vibes with how we view the talent of those respective players. But I do definitely think, you know, I don't know if there's a single running back stat that can't be co- team context, offensive line, scheme, all that. Like everything. That that's why it's so hard. When I said I don't think running back talent matters or that there isn't a difference, that's not necessarily actually how I view it. It's more that it just it's there's so much else that goes into it that it's marginal at best, the difference between mm-hmm. most running backs' ability to outperform their expectations or their situations. Um, you know, obviously I think Derrick Henry is one who, you know, if if you put Kenyon Drake in that offense. He's not rushing for 2000 yards. Do you think, um, do you think like, I mean, given the names that you, you just gave us, it, it seems to reason that this is something that is more of a, a talent. It more speaks to the talent of the running back than some of the other ones might like yards before contact or something like that. Because here you're talking about um, players who are going above and beyond yeah. what other average running backs might do in their situation. That I think the attempt, the, the intent is certainly to try to divine uh, true talent out of the, the noise that exists with running back production. And I think generally speaking, it probably does a pretty good job of it. I, my understanding is that it's not incredibly predictive on a year to year level, but I think that's kind of a, the nature of the beast because just like yards per carry, you know, if you have a guy who has one carry 
where he was expected to get two yards, but he broke one tackle and got 82 instead. Yeah. That's going to, that's going to skew things in a way that is not necessarily indicative of talent. You know, that, that, right. that kind of thing can happen to a not great player. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that's, that's one place in which it, it probably falls short a little bit. All right, let's move over to the wide receiver tight end. I think this is where people have a lot um, more exposure yeah. to the conversation. Um, but I still think that there's a value in, in going over this anyway. Um, and here we're talking about some of the some of the ones that you know have become big buzzwords is like the target share, um, route share, air yards, a dot, which is average depth of target. Um, which ones of these? Do you find and you can also feel free to talk about some of the ones I didn't mention, uh, which ones of these do you find uh, most beneficial or maybe even most confusing? The ones that people don't really understand the most. What are some of the ones that you um, you look to a lot when you're kind of evaluating uh, players? What what advanced stats for receivers are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if like target share counts as an advanced stat anymore, but right. it's still super valuable. You know, they're there's been a lot of talk about CD lamb since the start of training camp and, and his value. And, um, you know, one thing that people will point to as reason to believe in CD lamb is that he was on pace for like 90, 90 something catches, 1400 yards and six touchdowns in the five games Dak Prescott played. That would be really awesome production. Dak Prescott was on pace for 7,000 passing yards. Uh, yeah. you know, he had <laughs> yeah. 22 pass attempts in four and a half games or something like that. Um, and so, despite having those really impressive numbers, CD lamb actually only had a 16.7% target share. Hmm. And so it's the kind of thing where the context matters in which you put production up. Raw stats are still valuable. Um, but, a, a a stat that I, that I think is interesting that, that I think it highlights the, the need for these kind of contextual stats. I think Justin Jefferson's, I think the year before he came out, so not the big year, the, the Joe Burrow year. He had a higher percentage of the uh, of LSU's receiving yards than the 1,500. Yeah, it was 875 yards in his sophomore season versus 1,540 in his junior year. The 875 represented a higher share of the team's total passing yards because they're yeah. off so much better the second season. And so... <clears throat> Yeah, that's not to say that you can't get something out of the 1,540 yards. It's more to say that the 875 yard season was better than you think. So, you know, I think those context dependent stats matter quite a bit. Yeah. And, and I think like with the target share one too, I think it's interesting when you look at uh, target share, like when, when looking at like the satellite backs who are mm-hmm. getting receptions and you look like just overall market share, we're looking at the target share plus their rushing share mm-hmm. and kind of seeing what their overall usage is in an offense. Um, is there for a satellite back, a James White type guy, a Giovanni Bernard? Um, is there a kind of a minimum threshold you're looking for? Or if it's in a PPR league, it, you know that you're going to get those high um, catch rates. So as long as you know the role, it's okay. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing with those type of players, you know, specifically the guys who only get like 50 carries, you know, the the guys who you're just like Naheem Hines, those guys, um, they are very game script dependent. 
And so, you know, obviously target share, you know, you'll have the same target share, whether you get two targets out of 20 or four out of 40, you know, the, the, the share is the same, but you know, they tend to get targeted more often when their team's losing, um, even relative to the total number of pass attempts. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's a perception among the, the satellite backs that the passing game gives them a high floor, but they're actually very volatile players. They're high upside, low floor players. And so, you know, I think target share does matter, but you want a guy in that situation, you want a guy whose offense is going to play fast um, and keep those guys on the field when they're moving, which is what makes James White so valuable, you know, especially when mm-hmm. Tom Brady was there because there were a lot of times that they just stay in that no huddle offense and keep moving, That's right. whether they were in a, a first and goal or, you know, third and 10. They were just going to keep them out there. And, you know, so that's really valuable. You want a lot of volume. And, you know, J.D. McKissick last year with Washington is a really good example. You want a guy whose team is going to have to throw the ball a lot because they're trailing uh, with a quarterback who will dump it off. You know, you don't, you don't want a guy on a team like Deshaun Watson never throws to his running backs. It's just not part of his game because he's going to take off. Phillip Rivers is never going to take off or never did. So he was going to throw yeah. to his running backs a lot. Yeah, and I think too, like um, while I think the the target share is important, what you say about like the volume is is key because you know thirty percent of a target share on the the Cardinals is going to be a lot different than a thirty five percent share on the Ravens. Yeah, uh, where they're you know almost historically low. In yeah, the, yeah, like their, Marquise their Brown pass rate last season, especially early on. I think he ended up like twenty four percent target share. But early on, when he wasn't playing well, actually, he was getting like 27, 28% target shares. He was among the league leaders. Um, but that still only came out to about six targets per game. Yeah. Yeah, that's which is very different. Uh, I want to talk to you about one that um, we talked. We were talking about Jerry Judy earlier. Let's talk about drop rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's super simple. Um, it is exactly what you would expect drop rate to be. Do you think drop rate is something... Um, that matters in fantasy football. Uh, we, because because I've I've heard a lot of different guys be like drops don't matter. Um, but then you see like at the extremes with like Deontay Johnson last year, where now all of a sudden he's losing snaps. That's and his snap percentage is going. Yeah. So a guy like Jerry Judy who struggled with drops last year, who we were talking about earlier, and I think you have as one of your breakout players, and who who I'm pretty excited about too. Um, where do you think this kind of lands with him do you think last year's drop rate is any way predictive of what we should expect for him this upcoming year i I think most of the evidence suggests the drop rate has very little year-to-year predictivity um okay but even when it does like there are certainly players who drop uh, a higher rate of their passes than than typical like terrell owens actually was a player who dropped quite a few passes in his career but the fact that you have you're getting enough targets to drop passes, I think, is what matters more. It matters if the coach mm. thinks it matters. So Deontay Johnson getting benched in week eleven or twelve, whatever that was, that mattered. You can't say it didn't matter because he didn't play the second half of the game. <laughs> yeah. Where I where I think you can say it doesn't matter is over the next four games, he got forty seven targets and had three hundred three hundred and forty four yards and two touchdowns. So it only really matters if it costs the player playing time. 
And that can happen. But when you're talking about a guy like Jerry Judy, who didn't really struggle with drops as a, in, in college, and who had, I think, six of his ten drops in one game. I think that's, that's crazy. Just, I didn't realize that. He had a bad I think it was week 16. Yeah. He had six drops on like 14 targets. It was really bad. He came back the next game and I think had seven catches for 140 yards and a touchdown. And so yeah. if there was evidence that they soured on him as a result of that game, or if it was a consistent problem throughout his career, I, I think you could take something from that. But in the specific instance of Jerry Judy, and I think in most instances, the fact that he he was playing well enough to get you know close I think uh, close to 120 targets as a rookie, that's the relevant factor. If you're looking at the yeah. drops, I think you're missing the forest for the trees. Yeah, and and one of those games with uh, not even without a quarterback right. on their team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, that that's I think the the key thing. Like it, it can be, it matters in that that person lost production it doesn't matter in that it probably doesn't tell us much about what their production is likely to be, which is ultimately yeah. what we care about. Right. Now with air yards and a dot um, average depth of target, that's obvious um, where, where they are when they're targeted with air yards. Could you explain, is that where actually I'm not going to ask any questions. If you could just explain air yards, um, pretend like I don't know anything because sometimes this one does confuse me a little bit. Yeah. So average depth of target is just air yards divided by targets. Air, air yards is just the raw number. Average depth of target is the uh, total number or the the per target number. And so the, you know, they're, they both have value. I think a dot you look at and say, well, if this guy sees a bigger role and he can sustain this a dot, there could be huge upside there with raw air yards. You know, a good example I look at is um, I'm really high on Curtis Samuel this year, assuming he can get healthy. And a big part of that is the last time he played in Ron Rivera's offense, he was eighth in the NFL in air yards, despite only getting like 90 something targets. He was a, hmm. he had a huge downfield role in that offense. His dot was like 15 yards down the field. And you might respond by saying, yeah, but he only had 680 yards or something. He wasn't uh, a useful fantasy option, but the, the quarterback play that year was, you know, Will Greer and Kyle Allen, I think. And mm -hmm. on deep targets, they were on target something like 20% of the time total. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Ryan Fitzpatrick over the last two seasons has been right around 45%. And so that alone, just having more accurate passes down the field, if he has a similar role to that, I think Curtis Samuel could have a monster season. Um, yeah. So, real quick question on air yards. So, is it where the player is targeted when the quarterback releases the ball or when the ball, when the gets, ball gets to them? Yeah. Okay. So if a dude is, if the, if the guy is like 40 yards downfield when the ball gets to him, it doesn't matter when the ball was released. Yeah. It's when, okay, great. Uh, Cause that's, that, that's the part that I was like, never exactly quite sure of. Yeah. So that, that helps a lot. Cause like, um, a guy like DK Metcalf, it'll be interesting to see like with all those deep balls that they, and Tyler Lockett too, for yeah. that matter. Um, yeah. Okay. That's great. So do you think, um, 
I believe I was listening back to the uh, podcast where where you were uh, going over some of this, and, and Heath and you were having a discussion about what do you look for, like whether or not you want someone with high air, air yards, because oftentimes the higher the air yards, the lower the catch rate, because you know the the higher that's the higher difficulty pass. So, what kind of are you looking for a balance? Are you looking for a couple of splash players on each side? I know that in the article you mentioned that like Calvin Ridley led the league in, in air yards, and that's because not only did he have a high amount of targets thrown his way, but there were also uh, high value targets being yeah. down the field. So what are you looking for uh, when you look at a stat like air yards and how can that help us uh, kind of make good choices on draft day yeah. or looking at receivers on the waiver wire? Yeah. I mean, I think you look at air yards kind of just as a, almost as like a stand in for potential production. You know, if a player's getting a lot of air yards, there is always going to be the potential for a big game. And if a player is severely underperforming relative to that, you can look at it and say, well, maybe there's a good chance that they'll play better moving forward. Obviously a lot more goes into it than that though. You know, if you're getting downfield targets, but you're not creating separation and your quarterback can't throw it accurately. This is why Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, you know, being in an offense with Russell Wilson, throwing the ball down the field, uh, he is an incredibly accurate downfield passer. Um, and so that's going to make. <laughs> your, your cat is attacking you. My daughter yeah. is asking me questions. This is perfect. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I think it's, it's sort of a, a way to look at potential in, in so many words uh, is, and, and that's not necessarily to say that, a player with a low average depth of target can't be good. I love right. Rondale Moore uh, coming in. I think he can be an absolute monster in the Arizona in Cliff Kingsbury's offense because he is incredible with the ball in his hands after the catch. Uh, I think his only full season in Minnesota, actually, um, no Purdue, right? Sorry. All the injuries. Yeah, he yeah. had so many injuries, but the one full season that he had. And he had something like 71% of his yards after the catch. He's a small guy, but he Mm -hmm. is really thick and he's really good at breaking tackles and he's fast. And so, you know, Cliff Kingsbury had a lot of quick throws, a lot of screens last season. Um, I think Kyler Murray had one of the highest rates of passes within five yards of the line of scrimmage in the NFL. And so he could be so good in that offense if he can you know, step in in that slot role and start making plays because then it opens up, you know, a lot for DeAndre Hopkins who can start getting more downfield targets because he had to take on that role last year. And so, yeah, you know, it's not like a binary. This guy gets uh, a lot of deep passes. He's good. This guy doesn't. Um, so he's bad. It's it's more the the fewer downfield throws, the more value, the more your value is dependent on a high completion percentage and the ability to make plays after the catch where guys really stand out is when you have someone, you know, I think the historical example would be Terrell Owens who had was great at catching deep balls, but he was also incredible with the ball in his hands. And mm-hmm. I think AJ Brown is just Terrell Owens. Like, I think that that's right. the comp for him. He's so big. He's so strong. He's great down the field. He can make plays in, in, you know, one-on-one situations, he can go up and get the ball, but you also throw it to him on a slant and he can take it 60 yards. And that's one of the reasons I do like Jerry Judy as well. He was sixth in the league in air yards last year. Um, and he was one of the few wide receivers, I believe it was 
to average at least five yards after the catch and 10 plus yards of a dot. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's something you want to look for. <laughs> that's yeah. Um, real quick sticking with that. How are you? Um, what are you doing with Julio Jones right now with the injury? Um, low passing yep. volume for that team. You mentioned um, Brown kind of demanding a pretty high target share. Uh, also, he's been like kind of utilized all over the field. They like to use him deep. Mm-hmm. Where are you and Julio Jones right now? And he's injured. <laughs> I've already said that, yeah, but the concern yeah, is, again, the, still the concern for me is that he's a 32 year old who is currently injured. Um, everything that we saw from last year, Julio suggests that he's still one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. I mean, he had the two games where he didn't play a full um, snap share. And I think in one of them, he was, you know, used primarily as a decoy. And so the overall per game numbers don't look great, but he was incredibly productive last season when he was healthy and on the field. And so if he's healthy and on the field this year, I would expect him to be very, very productive. You know, maybe he doesn't have 1500 yard upside, but I think the acquisition of Julio Jones is probably a, a sign that they want to throw the ball a little more. Um, and I think it's going to be a, a very heavily concentrated offense between Brown, Julio, and, and Derrick Henry, obviously, in the running game. And so yeah, if Julio's healthy, I think him and A.J. Brown could both get 120 targets and just be incredibly efficient with, both, with them because they've both been incredibly efficient. I think the addition of Julio Jones... Actually, I moved A.J. Brown up when they got Julio Jones because I think it's Mm. going to make it less likely that he regresses from his elite touchdown and yards per attempt efficiency. Um, If Julio's not there, then it's, you know, kind of a different story. But as long as he's healthy, I think, you know, he would be a top 15 wide receiver for me as long as he's healthy. Yeah, that's great. One more guy I have to ask you about because, I mean, we we touched on some of the guys that you – you've mentioned in some of your sleepers and breakouts mm-hmm. column, but one guy we haven't talked about yet is um, one Mike Williams. Yeah. And I'd like to hear your percept, your perspective on him. Um, I quickly, uh, before we got on, I, I went over to Rotoviz and used our range of outcome tool, um, which is super great. And um, kind of the high level for, for uh, Mike Williams was like 14 points per game, which would be really, really good. I mean, that you're talking, um, you know, wide receiver two, wide receiver three type. Yeah. So the unfortunate reality for him is his low is super, super low. So he has a very wide range of outcomes. Uh, why are you high on Mike Williams? Yeah. So I think, oh, let me. One is sort of basic. We've seen him have a thousand yards. We've seen him have 10 touchdowns in a season. Obviously, it was different offense, different quarterback, but they're, they're you know, I, I can't remember which baseball writer it might be Fred Zinke fantasy baseball writer, you know, has said a lot like when you show a skill, you own that skill. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think that's, you know, it's overly simplistic, but I think more or less it's true. You know, when you've shown the ability like Mike Williams has to be an excellent down the field playmaker, and you've shown the ability to be a very good red zone uh, option, you know, I think that means that if he can ever put that together, he could be one of those guys who has like a Tyler Lockett 2018 season where he's a must-start wide receiver despite a low target share. The mm-hmm. other reason I like him is, you know, you listen to Joe Lombardi and they're they're installing this very Saints-inspired offense in 
Los Angeles. And he's talked about him. You know, he's made the comparison to Michael Thomas and the way he was used in the offense. I don't think Mike Williams is going to be used like Michael Thomas. I think that would be a waste of Michael Mike Williams uh, skills and probably a waste of Keenan Allen skills. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there does appear to be a, an opportunity for him to get, you know, maybe his first hundred target season. Um, and he's been incredibly efficient throughout his career, 9.5 yards per target. And so I just, and actually a pretty good touchdown rate too. Um, so I just look at it and say like, there, there's an opportunity here in this situation for Mike Williams to, you know, be a pre second breakout Tyler Lockett, be a po- you know, sub peak Deshaun Watson type of player. Yeah. And <laughs> unlike, you know, some of the other players we've talked about, you can get Mike Williams yes. uh, super cheap. Yeah. Yeah. He's going, and- we were talking about wide receiver ADP on fantasy football today and his ADP is right next to Henry Ruggs at around 48th at wide receiver. I think it's around a hundredth overall, maybe 120th even. And- yeah. I, I- According to Fantasy Pros, it's 112th overall. But yeah, right there, forty number 47 wide receiver. So if you are drafting wide receivers in that range, this is actually something that, you know, working with Ben Gretsch, who we were talking about before the show, um, working with him, he changed how I view a lot of, of stuff. And one of the ways was that I don't see a lot of value now in like a Jarvis Landry type, you know, they're, they're, those guys have value on your roster, but I, I'm not going out of my way to target them. And especially when I get mm-hmm. into that ninth and 10th round range and later where it's just kind of take your guys, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like ADP doesn't really matter there. Um, it's just who you like more. Um, I, I'm going to look for guys who have that kind of upside and whether it's yeah big season long upside, which I'm not necessarily sure Michael, Mike Williams has, I don't know if he could be a top 12 wide receiver. It would be a, a pretty, uh, pretty outlier season for him, but the big weekly upside, that's what I'm looking for from my bench wide receivers or my flex wide receivers is guys who can give you the production of two different wide receivers in a given game. And so it's a lot of guys with big downfield roles or guys who potentially have big downfield roles. Mike Williams, um, you know, Will Fuller's going a little earlier, but he's definitely in that discussion. Um, That that's what I'm looking for when I'm looking for wide receivers in that range is, can you give me a massive game when I need it? Yeah. What's crazy is if you would have asked me before I just looked up his ADP, how old he was, I would have guessed about 28, 29. He's only 26 years old. It's, it's just crazy how, how quickly we move on and uh, from, from these players. Here's one that blew me away. Uh, Curtis Samuel has been in the NFL two years longer than Terry McLaurin. Terry McLaurin's been in the NFL for two years. Uh, Curtis Samuel is 11 months younger than Terry McLaurin. Yeah, that's insane. That blew, like that's we we do the like Juju Smith Schuster is younger than X player who yep. you're really excited about his youth thing. Yeah, uh, Curtis Samuel's right there. Curtis Samuel, that's I think, so just turned 25 yesterday. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, my only reason why I'm not as high on Curtis Samuel as you is I'm huge into Deami Brown this year. Sure, uh, the the rookie from North Carolina. 
Um, but that's just because I bought into him last year and I've been pushing him on the show for a while. So sense. I just have to continue on. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Chris, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to join us today. Um, everyone do go follow Chris on Twitter at C towers, CBS, uh, do, uh, sign up for the newsletter. It's going to be, um, just in the notes here underneath the podcast. Um, you can find him, go to the CBS sports fantasy uh, page. You'll find him on both the football and baseball side. He's, he's giving, he's giving us all the content, um, we need, and, uh, we're all better for, uh, for reading it. So Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, anything you want to uh, to leave our listeners with? Uh, just uh, if you like me at all, subscribe to the Fantasy Football Today newsletter because that is uh, there you go. That's that's, that's easy. That's enough. the most direct way that you can uh, show your support. Unless you also want to ask me for my my Venmo. There you Either go. Way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, cool. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Um, Enjoy uh, enjoy your weekend, which is coming, you know, a day early. That's perfect. Thank you. All right. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.